Let us pray. God of grace and truth, in Jesus Christ, you came among us as light shining in darkness. We confess that we have not welcomed the light or trusted good news to be good. We have closed our eyes to glory in our midst, expecting little and hoping for less. Forgive our doubt and renew our hope, so we may receive the fullness of your grace and live in the truth of Christ the Lord. Christ came to take the punishment we deserved upon himself. Hear the good news. All who humbly ask forgiveness find it in Christ. Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. What's going on? It's a wonderful to see you all here. You've braved uh, spring break and hopefully the last snow of the season. And here you are, and it's a delight to have you in worship today. Uh, I welcome you here. Remind you, there's coffee and tea and other things right outside uh, at the coffee bar, um, just in the lobby there. Feel free to avail yourself of that. Uh, right after worship today. Um, speaking of coffee, next week is our monthly time when um, our Caring for Creation folks will be offering for you fair trade products, coffees and teas and chocolates and nuts, and that'll be out in the lobby next uh, Sunday, which, uh, by the way, is uh, Palm Sunday, and the beginning of um, Holy Week and the special services uh, that surround that time. Just to remind you, there's a a Christian Seder meal that's going to take place on Monday, Thursday, and that'll be downstairs in Fellowship Hall. If you'd like to be a part of it, it's a meal that's, and a worship service that's designed really for the whole family, uh, children through uh, uh, senior adults, uh, and it's a wonderful time when we actually can gather uh, all of those uh, age groups together in one family. So we need you to sign up for that. You have a bulletin tab there in your pew if you can make it, because we just need to know how much food to, to order. Then on Good Friday, there's going to be uh, a special uh, service of Tenebrae as it gets, um, if you remember how Tenebrae goes, um, we'll be uh, looking at um, those final hours, days and hours in Jesus' life. It'll be getting gradually darker in the sanctuary. We'll be removing um, the candles and a number of things, and, and finally that ends in darkness. And then, of course, the celebration of Easter morning. We'll have two uh, celebratory services at their regular time on Sunday. In between, though, there'll be no Sunday school. Um, there'll be a continental breakfast downstairs, Fellowship Hall. Um, come enjoy that either after the first service or before the second. Um, we'd love to have you do that. And then finally, if you would like to help uh, decorate the sanctuary for Easter, uh, you have a chance to do that by purchasing flowers, uh, Easter lilies, tulips, hyacinths, 
And there's little um, envelopes in your pews. They look like this, Easter flower orders. And if you can fill those out, uh, write a check, whatever, put those in the um, offering plate when it comes by. I'd love to have you do that. I think probably next week is your last opportunity for that. All right. Children of the congregation, would you come forward for your uh, Sunday lesson with Pastor Jeff? We're a small group this morning. <laughs> How are you today? Good. I'm impressed you made it here. I had a long trip. It's kind of slushy on the highways, but giving thanks to God that we all made it safe. Well, do you know what season of the church here we're in right now? Easter. That's right. Or another, another name for it is Lent. Lent, which means 40 in language. Yeah, so we're in the season of Lent, and we're talking about the cross-centered life. cross-centered life. But this morning, we're also doing something special that we do in all seasons of the year. And it has to do with this big table behind me. Do you, do you know what we have? What's this here? Bread, that's right. You know what's in those? Why do we have bread and wine on this table? To celebrate Palm Sunday? Yeah, that'll be next Sunday. That's, that's one thing we can do. Yeah, we have, we have bread and wine on this special table in worship because it's actually, it has a really long backstory to it. Yes. The Last Supper, yeah, that's another name for it. That's another name for it. But this meal has been around for thousands of years, believe it or not. The people of Israel, you may remember last fall, we had a lot of stories in worship about the Exodus, where God's people were being delivered. That's where the meal actually comes from. A special day called Passover in, in the Jewish faith. That's right. That's right. We as Christians also celebrate this meal, and we call it the Lord's Supper, or Holy Communion, or some other people call it Eucharist, which is kind of a big word, but it just means thanksgiving, to give thanks to God for this meal. So it's, it's really important for us as Christians to remember that, that Jesus, Jesus himself, shared this meal with his disciples, and Jesus shares it with all of us, even today, whether we're five years old, 27, like me, or even some of your parents or grandparents. Jesus invites all of us to come to this table. And it's not, it's not just a service where we think about Jesus, but we actually are nourished, we're, we're fed. You know how sometimes you're really, really hungry, and you get that lunch, you get that dinner. In the same way, but God can feed us, God can nurture us with this meal in our own faith. So we give thanks to God and we get to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. Would you pray with me? God, we give you thanks for this table and that these children are welcome at it. Please bless them. Be with them today. Nourish all of our faiths. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
and all God's children said, Throughout this uh, Lenten season, we've been talking about the cross-centered life. And we've had the opportunity to have a number of the members of our congregation come up and share with us uh, some adversities that they've faced in their life and where um, God had been with them through those difficult times. And uh, we continue that uh, today and, and again next week. Uh, today, um, I have uh, twisted another arm, this one very close to home, actually at home, and uh, so today, um, my wife, uh, Dr. Paulette Tobirin Incorporated, <laughs> has agreed to come up here and uh, share with you. Uh, Paulette's a, a mother and a grandmother. She's known as Cookie Grandmother at our house. And um, as a psychotherapist, um, she sees all kinds of adversity, heartbreak, um, all the time in, at, at her, uh, her practice. We say it's a good day when uh, none of Paulette's clients end up on the evening news, which uh, has happened a, a few times. Also, uh, there's some adversity that comes with being uh, my wife, I think, but we're, you're not going to talk about that today. Why not? No. Okay, that's good. <laughs> so, um, but you have um, experienced a number of things over the last, we'll say, 20 years. And so, uh, I thought maybe we, we would start with uh, about 20 years ago. Um, I had our two little people, uh, Matt and Liz, and we were going to meet you. You were coming from work, and we were going to meet you for a movie, uh, and we were going to see that together, and uh, we waited and waited, and you never showed up, and we just said, well, she, something must have happened with a client, so we went into the movie, but you never made it there. Right. After work, I was on my way to meet them, and I was in a car accident. It was, it was a head-on collision, a, a drunk driver hit, hit me. And I was unconscious and didn't know anything for about a week what had happened. But uh, just pre to start you off with that, God was, had prepared me even for that particular moment because the week before, Michael and I were supposed to meet for lunch, and he was at one restaurant and I was at another. So I had, so I had checked with my secretary before I left that night to say, so if we're at the wrong theater, this is where I'm going. So when the police called looking for someone my, to talk, to call because I was unconscious in the hospital. They called my work and the secretary knew where I was because of I, God was just preparing us for that moment. So he got a call in the theater saying I was in the hospital. Um, it's, so a, it's a definitely an experience you don't want to have <laughs> when while the movie's going on somebody walks down to the front of the theater and says is there a Mike Tobirin here? <laughs> That's never a good thing. You don't want that to happen. <laughs> so even at that point, God was preparing me. And then uh, when I was driving back, we were in Indiana at the, at the time, and we were on a, I was on a road that didn't really have much traffic, and I was behind a big semi. But I, I got this feeling that something was wrong, and I looked, and looked around at the side of the road to see if I could pull off in case something happened. And when I did that, that's when I got hit. So I never saw it, so I never had those flashbacks because I never ended up seeing it. But uh, so we, about a week later, I woke up in the hospital and um, I said to Michael, what happened? What happened? And he said, you were in a car accident. And I said, okay. I asked him again, so what happened? You were in a car accident. Now I was getting annoyed at this point. I know, what happened? So then he explained it to me. I didn't know that for the last week he, he, I had been asking and not remembering what 
what he had said, so he kept repeating the same thing. But at that point, I started coming back, and it was, I, it was the weirdest thing, because I started talking about it as if when I died, when I came back. And even though I didn't have a feeling, you know, that some people know that they're on their way or whatever, I didn't have that bright light or anything, but I knew that I had come back for a reason, and that God had sent me back for my children's sake. And at the time, I was in grad school trying to get my doctorate. I was very focused on, my, on getting my career moving. So it was kind of like a wake-up call that God said, no, you're here for a another reason. you got to take care of your children. Little did I know, years later, how, how important that really would be. So yeah, we'll fast forward a little bit. You went yeah. through that <laughs> month in the hospital. You came out and gradually recovered. And kids grow, grew up. We left Indiana. We moved to here. And then... Somewhere about the time that uh, our daughter's, a, I guess, a freshman in high school, we discover that um, um, she has, uh, or will be shortly, diagnosed uh, as being bipolar. And we, you know, that was a very challenging and difficult time. We went through, um, I've lost track of the number of hospitalizations and all of that. And talk about that. I know that was frustrating for you as a mental health professional. For me, I didn't know what it m meant. It was all new to me, but for you, you knew. So I think it was even harder. Yeah, it was harder because we don't really have bipolar in our family, and that tends to be genetic, so I had no clue. I, knew, I didn't expect that because it wasn't really in our family. So I was trying, she was depressed. I was trying to help her. I felt it was my job. I was the professional. I should at least be able to help my own daughter, but it wasn't working. And uh, I couldn't figure out what was really going on. And we did, we had all these ups and downs. Um, and it was very frustrating. And I felt like there was nothing I could do. And if I can't help her, who can? Um, and I finally, I really, during that time, God was with me. And it's because I couldn't even, it got to a point I couldn't even pray. I was just kind of like numb. I didn't know what to do. And God sent people to me to help me. They were my prayer warriors. They were there for me. He sent people to help me get through that time and lift me up through it. And it was, a, it, it was a horrible time, but as I look back, God was there through every step of the way. And I couldn't fix him, but he fixed her. As many of you know, a great miracle happened, and she's a wonderful Christian mom now and doing great. So I had to let go so God could, could step in and fix her, and it, and it was a great lesson. <laughs> Now, that would be great if that was the last adversity yeah, <laughs> that you faced, but uh, two or three years ago now, you... Four years. Four years ago, okay. Um, you noticed that you didn't have the energy, that you were worn down, that um, you were having a hard time tracking things, and you go to the doctor and discover what? Um, well, actually, I knew it before I went to the doctor. Four years ago, my thyroid stopped functioning, and I could just, I felt something click off. We were on vacation, and something just stopped functioning, and I, could, I knew something was wrong. I thought it was, of course, I was trying to self-diagnose. I thought it was, uh, I was in, in menopause, and it was just hormone stuff, and it'd get better. So I was trying to fix myself, which took two years to find a real doctor to give me a real diagnosis. But um, it was very terrible, it was because once the thyroid stops functioning, your whole metabolism slows down, the thinking slows down, being able to talk, I couldn't verbalize, I couldn't say words, I couldn't, um, I got really, really depressed, I couldn't think, I couldn't speak, it was just horrible. I was falling, in, it felt like I was going into early Alzheimer's. 
and I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't explain it to anybody. I didn't understand it myself. And it was two years of a lot of loneliness. And it was, in this point, it was me and God. That's he, when I would drive home from work at night, I would cry, I would pray. I said, God was the only one that knew really what I was going through because I couldn't, I didn't know and I couldn't verbalize it. So it was a very lonely time. And then two years later, they found a nodule on my thyroid, which, and that's when they tested for thyroid and realized there was none. So uh, that was the beginning of surgeries. It was the beginning of studying on the thyroid medicine. And the thyroid medicine works gradually. It takes time to build up. So it took probably six months for me to be able to feel some semi-normal again. And that just happened to be the time I started with my spiritual friend, Barbara Sligmuller. <laughs> And she's and through this year and a half, she's kind of she's been there to help me kind of try to get back on track and feel like I can start my life again. It's kind of like when it was um, when I when I had the car accident. I feel like I'm starting over. That God has a new plan, a new purpose, and I don't know what it is. And I because I, I felt like such a failure during that time. I couldn't be a good mom. I couldn't be a good wife. I couldn't be a good Christian couldn't be good anything, and I felt like a real failure, and that, that God was done with me, and I was just kind of there. But God is helping me get through this and, and see that he has a new purpose and new goals for my life, and I'm starting to feel alive again, so it's really great. <laughs> Thank you very much for You're sharing welcome. that for being willing to do that. Thank you, ma'am. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Our God, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. With your great, glorious power, give us the strength for you to guide us to the right path. And dear God, help guide President Obama to get our troops home safely very soon. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.
Today's scripture reading is Psalms 119, 10 through 16, found on page 566 in the Old Testament in your pew Bibles. With my whole heart I seek you, Lord. Do not let me stray from your commandments. I treasure your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the ordinances of your mouth. I delight in the way of your decrees as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Our second scripture lesson, as you see, is from the Gospel of Matthew. You can find it on the 30th page of the New Testament there. Listen for the word of God. On the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples said to Jesus, came to Jesus saying, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is near. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover meal. When it was evening, he took his place with the twelve and While they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. And they became greatly distressed, and they began to say to him one after another, Surely not I, Lord. He answered, The one who's dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it's written of him, but woe to that one by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that one not to have been born. Judas, who betrayed him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. And he replied, You've said so. While they were eating, Jesus took a loaf of bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will never again drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. This revelation that Judas is going to betray Jesus It's one of those most painful moments in Scripture. Before we talk about that directly, though, it's important that we appreciate the context in which this takes place, this this intimate setting, this this meal, which in in ancient Palestine was, you know, just a sign of of intimacy. When you were invited to have a meal with someone, it it was a very big thing. It's a meal. But it's not just any meal. It's kind of the Hebrews' meal of meals, this Passover that they're sharing together. It commemorated that time over a thousand years earlier when when the people of Israel found themselves uh, slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt. A time when uh, the Hebrews themselves may have questioned, where was God? 
He'd promised through Abraham, the great patriarch, through his son Isaac and his son Jacob that I'll be your God and you'll be my people. Your descendants will be like the, the stars in the heavens and like they'll be as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And God had watched over the patriarchs and they'd, he'd kept them safe. And, and you remember the story of, of Joseph and his amazing uh, code and all of that and being thrown into the pit and how all that works itself out to, to get the family that's starving back uh, down into Egypt where there's food for them to eat and they come and they're welcomed by the Pharaoh but, but over time new Pharaohs arise and after quite a bit of time the situation changes completely and, and now the Israelite people are slaves in Egypt where before they'd been welcome guests they're now slaves and by that the time of Moses all they were doing were actually being those absolutely free workers for Pharaoh building his great monuments. And it was very difficult, a very difficult life. And they probably began to wonder, where is God? Well, it's in that context that Moses shows up. But God sends Moses and he sends him to Pharaoh. And you remember how that story goes. God says, I, I, you need to let these people go and worship him in the desert. You need to let them go. And Pharaoh, he's not, you know, eager to um, give up his free labor, as you might imagine. And uh, so right away, he's, he, is, he doesn't respond to what Moses has to say. So then God brings all of these plagues. There's nine of them. You know, there's, there's uh, the Nile turns to blood. There's gnats and flies and grasshoppers and hail and all kinds of stuff happens. And it looks like every time that, that Pharaoh is just about to relent and, and, and let the people go, but then at the last moment he goes, no, no, I've changed my mind on that. These guys are staying here until we get to that very last plague. This most serious plague where the angel of death is going to be sent by God and will come, to, he says, to all of the homes in Egypt all of the Egyptians and all of the Israelites as well. And the firstborn in every family will, be, will die. Except there's a remedy. To the Israelite people, he says, on this night, take a lamb and slaughter it and eat the lamb. But before you do, take the blood from the lamb. And remember how that story goes? Let's say this was our front door of our house. You're supposed to take some of this blood and go to the front door of your house and then kind of paint it, kind of sprinkle it around all around the door frame. With the object being that when the angel of death comes over your house, flying over your house, he will see that blood that's painted there over the door frame and pass over. As if to say someone has already died here. Blood has been paid. And that's what the Jews did. They sacrificed the lamb, they took that blood, they painted over their door frames, and the angel of death came, and every firstborn in Egypt, including the son of Pharaoh, died. But the Israelite homes were spared. And at last, Pharaoh relented for a while and let the people go. And they go out into the desert and as they begin this pilgrimage to the promised land that takes a while, remember God says, never forget this night. 
Never. Every year, you're going to eat this meal. And you're going to commemorate and remember what I have done for you on this night. I brought you as slaves out of Egypt. And I brought you to this promised land. Never forget that. I did that. I will always be with you. So it's this context, if we like fast forward another thousand years to where Jesus is, and it's in this context, and, and it's starting to look a little bit similar because now the Israelites are true. They're in the promised land. They're in Israel, their own country, except for this one little problem. They're now have another emperor in charge of them. Emperor, the Caesar, the, the emperor of Rome. And it's been a while. And they, too, must be asking at this point, has God forgotten about us? What happened to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of Moses who led his people out of bondage? Did we come through all of that just so that we could be in bondage here to Rome, to Caesar? What's in that context? that we come to that night. Jesus with his disciples are there in that room eating that meal, that Passover meal, the one that the Jews had been celebrating for hundreds of years at that point. This is no accident why Jesus has chosen this moment. He's being very intentional for his disciples, Jesus is redefining the Passover meal. From now on, they will understand that he is the Passover lamb whose blood will be shed once and for all. There will be no need of any Passover lambs after this. And it's in this context in this incredibly intimate, powerful moment that Judas acknowledges that he'll be the one to sell out Jesus. And it'll happen a little bit later that night for 30 pieces of silver. What is it that caused Judas to do this thing? to betray Jesus. In the Gospel of Luke, it tells us that, you know, there's some satanic influence involved, that, that Satan entered into him, and he did that. But, but Jesus is also says, but woe unto you, even though this had to happen, woe unto you by whom it comes, because you still have responsibility for your actions. Satan can tempt us, but we're the ones that give in to temptation. There have been lots of speculation over time. Was it as it says in one of the Gospels, that he was greedy, Judas, that he was a lover of money, that he did this thing. Maybe it was jealousy of the other disciples that Jesus seemed to perhaps be more fond of them than of him. He certainly wasn't one of that inner band of Peter, James, and John that was going um, here and there. Was it a misguided attempt to get Jesus to openly tip his hand and declare himself the Messiah? Saying to himself, if I just force him 
then he will become the Messiah that, that he needs to be. He's just been dragging his feet. Or is it that finally Judas realizes that Jesus is not going to be the kind of Messiah that he wants Jesus to be? That he wants him to be a political Messiah. He wants him to be um, a military Messiah that will overthrow these Romans. This spiritual Messiah is not quite what he had in mind. Whatever the reason that Judas couldn't understand or appreciate the way of Christ and his kingdom, it was clear that he missed that strength comes through service, triumph through sacrifice. As one has said, sometimes the Christian life seems weak and foolish. We want a conquering hero, a superhero who will, who will just wipe out all of our enemies and all of our difficulties on the spot. It takes real spiritual insight to see where Jesus is coming from. I suspect that at that moment, when Judas and Jesus sort of lock eyes together, it's like there's no one else at the table. Just the two of them. Consider how Jesus must have felt that night. One of his closest friends was about to turn on him. This is not a hanger-on. This is not a, an acquaintance. It's one of the 12. It's one of those hand-picked guys that he picked from the very beginning. One of his hand-picked men. Jesus is going to be betrayed by a man who spent three years with him, walking the dusty roads of Palestine. One of the people that had seen him do all of the miracles, who had eaten the bread and the fishes that had miraculously been multiplied and fed 5,000 others, somebody who had known all of that, who'd heard him preach and teach and seen him heal. How must Jesus have felt that night? The shock, the horror, the dismay. Can you imagine being betrayed by one of your closest friends? Here at Rembrandt's Last Supper, you see something on Jesus' face that Rembrandt's trying to catch. What is that look that's there? Dismay, shock, deep sadness. Now here is what I think is the amazing thing about this story. How does Jesus respond? How does he respond? As utterly devastated as we might think that he would be to have one of his closest betray him, it seems to me that one of the things that could have happened is he could have just been incapacitated by sorrow. He could have, or he could become extremely bitter that this had happened to him. Or he could become angry and outraged and could have gone ballistic, really, at that moment upon Judas. That might have been my choice. But that's not what happens at all, is it? Not at all. 
right after Judas is revealed as Jesus' betrayer, immediately the scripture says what? Did you catch that? Immediately the scripture says that Jesus then did this thing with the bread and the wine. That's the next thing. As one of his little band of followers is pulling away, Jesus is drawing the rest of them closer. Into the intimacy of this meal, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. Those words would and must have burned holes in their hearts. As we know that Christians didn't get around to celebrating Christmas, that birthday of Jesus, for 300 years after this, but they started celebrating this meal immediately, almost from the very beginning. This holy communion. As you come to this table today, some of you may be reeling from the sting of betrayal yourself. Maybe it's recent, maybe it happened a long time ago, but you can still feel it. Still like a vice around your, your foot. Drag, you drag it with you. Jesus seems to suggest to us that rather than trying to, to exact revenge, to harbor that grudge, to let your anger or sorrow incapacitate you, he seems to suggest instead that we ask of ourselves, how can I draw closer those who I still have around me? You know, betrayal can come in many forms. It can come as it did with Jesus here, being betrayed by a person, an intimate. It can come as we're betrayed by a group or an institution. I think a lot of people in our country feel betrayed by some financial institutions and others at this time. Sometimes it can feel like your body has betrayed you. If you have a disease or you discover that you have cancer, you say, how did that happen? What's going on? Sometimes as we get older, we feel that way. Our bodies are starting to betray us. Sometimes, by death, as it takes away from us those whom we love and we care about. Are we going to let those things incapacitate us? Are they going to make us angry so that we're unable to function, that we're unable to do good in the world, to follow Christ as he'd intended? Or can we learn from what Christ has done and, and take the opportunity to draw closer those who remain? I've been thinking about that a little bit in my own life. You get to a certain stage in life and the folks that you know begin to, to disappear, to die, to move on. I was thinking recently um, about the death of George Borneman and others and, 
and uh, Missing George. Um, and then looking around me at those in my own life. And I realized that, this is a little thing, I realized that um, since our daughter had gotten married and, and had children, she and I had very rarely had a chance to have a conversation without little tiny people roaming around, yelling and screaming. And uh, so, I had this idea. We should do something about that. So she became a deacon recently, and, and I go, oh, she has to come to deacon meetings. So now after deacon meetings, we have this father and daughter dinner late at night, and we go to a restaurant, and we just sit there, and we, we have a chance to, to talk and to catch up, a chance to be drawn back together to an intimacy that we've missed. Betrayal, death, sorrow. They can really move in our lives to push us away, to isolate us, to make us withdraw. But you see in what Jesus is doing that instead of letting that happen in his own life, he takes this opportunity. He says, this is my body. This is my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And he reaches out. And he said, I have lost one. But I am not going to lose you. You belong to me. In life and in death. Always. And forever. Amen. Maybe seated. in. As we come to prayer together before we eat this meal, um, let me share these concerns uh, for you and joys. Um, many of you are aware that there was a, a fire, a pretty serious fire on Spring Road uh, this last week. And um, we're thankful that no one was hurt in the fire. But John said, Ask that we pray for those uh, affected by the fire, um, especially for Sue and Shin Kim, uh, owners of, of the K Cleaners, 
um, which has been completely destroyed uh, in the fire. Um, he asked for prayers, uh, especially for them and, and the other uh, store owners uh, who were, are dealing with this tragedy. Diane Heflin asked for prayers for her brother, uh, Bob Grosso, and her secretary, Jackie Washington. We also want to ask for prayers for those in our congregation who are out of work and certainly those um, around this country and world who are, who are without employment um, because of the economic downturn. Marianne Luther uh, asked for prayers for her grandson, Andrew, who's 16 um, and is diabetic and not um, entering as responsibly as he needs to into his own uh, care. Uh, diabetes, so we pray for him. And also Joyce Carlin um, prays for, asks us to pray for Jean uh, Peterson, her daughter-in-law's mother, um, who has been uh, diagnosed with uh, severe anaplastic thyroid cancer. Uh, she had surgery this week at Mayo Clinic. Um, continue prayers for her. And then we also ask for prayers for Alex Smith's uh, stepfather, Rick Wining, uh, who was found unconscious and is being treated for a non-functioning pancreas at Elmhurst Hospital. And now some joys. Uh, good news on the health front. Uh, Jean Borneman uh, reports that her latest tests results show that uh, there is no sign of cancer and we are very happy about that. No more tests for six weeks at least. That's great news. Great news, Jean. And then, this has been long anticipated, and so I have to share this with you. Gary and Margaret Schaefer share the joy that their daughter Amy is engaged and anticipating a December wedding. So, if you know the Schaefers, you know they've been anxious about this for some time. So, when you see Margaret and Gary, you can share those joy with them. Let us pray together. Lord, it is your table that we come to, not ours. You invite, you extend your arm, you beckon us to come. You don't say, oh no, you can't come to this table until you're perfect. You don't say, don't come to this table until your theology is just right. You don't say, don't come to this table until you've got it all figured out. You say, come now. Come while you're hurting. Come while you're broken. Come while you're full of longing. While you're hungry to know me and to be filled. Loving God, we lift up all of these who we've named. We bring them to the table with us as we come forward, and we bring many more who are upon our hearts, if not upon our lips. We bring them to you right now in the silence of this moment.
bring to this table. Because you are a great God. We bring the concerns of our community, of our nation, and of our world. Lord, we also come ourselves. We bring our worries. We bring our neediness. We bring unfinished business of long standing. But we come. We ask that you meet us here, that you take our burdens. You guide our footsteps, that you strengthen our resolve to be followers of you. And that we give thanks that you loved us enough to die on our behalf. And then, beyond death rose from the, the grave, that we might ourselves know the promise of eternal life. Lord, we thank you. And we pray together the prayer you taught us, saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power and the glory forever. And so I now invite you to this, the table of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You are welcome. It's not the table of Yorkfield Presbyterian, but for all who've been baptized in the faith, come, eat. Also, I remind you today that as you come forward uh, through the center aisle, if you would like to have special prayers for healing uh, for yourself or for another, uh, when you go back along the side aisles rather than going directly back to your pew, uh, you may go beyond the coffee bar into the library area, and there will be some folks waiting there to pray uh, with you and for you. Hear now those words that Jesus shared with his disciples at that Passover meal. As he took the bread, 
He gave thanks for it, and he said, this is my body, broken for you. Take, eat in remembrance of me. And then as he took the cup, he poured it for them, saying, this is the new covenant in my blood, shed for the remission of sins. As often as you drink this cup, do so in remembrance of me.
And now as you go from this place, to serve the Lord, to enjoy him always, know that the love of God, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit go before you and behind you this day and always. Amen. Thank you.